Welcome to the Configure It Done podcast. The Configure It Done podcast is a place where successful thought leaders in the SAP space come to share their leadership styles, their tips, and their unique stories on how to run successful large-scale SAP programs. Listen to the podcast to learn from their successes, their failures, their career stories, and their inspirations. This podcast is in partnership with the Black Dog Institute, who aim to create a mentally healthier world for everyone. If you wish to support the cause, please donate via the link below. Welcome to the Configure It Done podcast. This is episode six of series two. Uh, I've got the Laura, lovely Sarah De Cruz uh, with us today. And, and Sarah, um, you've got us another fantastic guest. So I'm going to hand over to you to introduce Tina. So hello, Tina Barker. We actually first met as my contractor, funnily enough. The New South Wales Fire and Rescue. Since then, you've moved on to bigger and better, which I won't take personally, but you're a senior manager now at Accenture just recently. That's correct. Yes, I am. <laughs> what a time. Look, we're going to head straight into the quick fire rounds, and it's just going to be a real quick get to know you. So if people don't know you at the beginning, they'll certainly know you at the end. But let's get into it. What's your full name? Tina Barker. Nicknames? Got a few, Fieldo, T2, and Teabag. <laughs> teabag, like, what's the story behind yeah, that? Yeah, <laughs> Teabag's got a story, oh, Tina. Teabag's probably, got a story. Probably ill-spent youth, I think. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> ill-spent youth. We've all got one. And where are you from? Actually from New Zealand. Yeah, that's right. I remember when you first said, so topical question then, how long have you been in Australia? Um. Ooh. Remember how old I am? 41 years. There you go. And where are you currently working? I mean, I already told them, but yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm on a government contract here in Queensland at the moment. Um, just leave the client out of that if that's yeah. <laughs> That's all good. And what's the best job you ever had? No pressure to Accenture. Oh, um, probably. Maybe a job that I had in London, it was completely unrelated to what I do now. Um, but you arrive in London, you're poor, you've run out of money, you need a job, and you meet some crazy guy in a bar who's offering you a job that actually turns out to be real. And what that job was, was actually managing these 1970s luxury apartments in central London. Um, for a lovely gentleman who had bought them and made all the money in the 70s with them and he was now renting them to students um, at Imperial College in London. So my job was to remind the students to clean the flat, pay the rent um, and, you know, not lock themselves out. But um, really interesting job because you got to deal with people from all over the world that had come to this college to become engineers. Oh, good. Wow. Sorry, that's um, the second guest that you've brought on that said London, by the way. Just saying, London is the best city in the world. (laughs) For context, Tina, I'm quite famous in the office for dishing some shade at London. But um, I am repeatedly and very publicly now been made wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Look, London is a fantastic city, but you've just got to know how to live in that city to be able to enjoy it. And I'm not a city person, but... You know, I'm never sad to go to London. Maybe that's where I'm going wrong. Maybe that's where I'm going wrong. And worst job? Again, no pressure to Accenture. (laughs) Probably my very first job as a checkout chick. 
There's oh, absolutely the worst, nothing right? riveting about scanning groceries and packing bags. And what about your favourite sport? I remember we had a chat about this the first time we met face-to-face. Yeah, I'm a bit of a sports nut, so it depends on if I'm playing or I'm watching. Um, if I'm watching, it has to be either Aussie Rules or Rugby Union with my beloved All Blacks. If I'm playing sport, I love playing touch football. Um, I've gone back to playing netball after 25 nice. years. Nice. What um, position? What position? Look, I'm all over the court. Um <laughs> I like to sit back in the circle where I don't have to do a great deal, but I'm currently playing a lot of defence and in the centre again. There you go. I was a centre girl as well, just so you know. Did hell on my knees in high school, though. Never again. (laughs) And um, what about your favourite beer? Probably at the moment, it's um, it's a Byron Bay lager. But if I had to say overall, it would have to be the Yingling lager from Pennsylvania. Ooh, deep dive. I'll add that one to next to the list. And then favourite meal to have with said beer? Would have to be a toss-up between a piece of um, grilled coral trout or a good old I fill it with garlic sauce. Good choice. Choices, excellent choices. Okay, nearing the end of it now, number one lockdown tip? Uh Probably don't live in Victoria or New South Wales. <laughs> <laughs> the good one. And how have you kept yourself sane in sunny, sunny Queensland? Well, I'm really lucky because I've got a 35-acre farm. So if I'm not working, I'm mowing, weeding, whippersnippering, looking after animals um, and, and dreaming big on what we can do on this farm next. How exciting. And if you could describe your management style in one word, what would it be? Loose. Um, when I say loose my theory as a manager I don't want to micromanage anyone I want to have faith and trust in the people that have been engaged to do the work with me and you know they're in that position not because they need to be micromanaged they're in that position because they know how to do their job so you know providing we stick to the plan and we have a great plan then there is what I would deem in my personality a loose management of of collecting the information that I need to ensure that the project's successful. I like that. Nice. Yeah, we're going to get more into that later, don't you worry. And um, favourite music and or film? I'll let you choose which one. Well, music, probably at the moment we've um, got on high repeat Pearl Jam and The Killers. Nice, nice. Killers were one of my, my top albums last year, funnily enough. Best holiday destination? Hawaii. Ooh, nice. Bucket list thing to do? Uh, no, that's the regular holiday. The bucket list <laughs> is uh, Finland, which um, I managed to get the kids to for Christmas in 2019 for Blackland oh, nice. uh, Christmas. Oh, our directors did something very similar as well. Um, Favourite city? Ooh, probably New York. Oh, nice. And if you weren't an SAP, what would you do? Um, I think I'd like to be a landscape gardener. I can see that. I can see that. I imagine with the farm, that's just stuff that you'd be constantly thinking about as well. Yeah, anything outside, anything with my hands, anything creative, I think. Nice. Oh, that'd be good. And last one, a fun fact about yourself. 
not that much fun at the moment. <laughs> um, a little bit, a little bit crazy. Like I said, I love anything outdoors. So it's not unusual for me to take the kids four wheel driving through water holes with a car that's maybe not 100% set up for the depth of the water we go through. <laughs> a little, a little bit randomly crazy. Um, it's probably the funniest thing about me is I'll try anything once. It's either going to succeed or it's going to fail. A good Love approach. That. A good yeah. approach to having like, awesome. Thank you for that, Tina. And now we're into the meaty stuff. Jay, on to you. Yeah, it's good to uh, good to get to know you. I feel I know you a lot, a lot better now after those uh, 20 questions, which is good. But um, yeah, coming into the, the crux of it, um, I'd love to know a bit about your story, Tina, and, and how you got into SAP. Yeah, a little bit of a funny story. Um, I'd been at university. I'd actually broken my arm quite badly and I had a university debt I needed to pay off. And um, I decided to pack up my car with my dog and I drove um, 1,600 kilometres north to Karatha in the Pilbara of Western Australia um, and, and just tried to get a job in the mines. I didn't care if I was cleaning or I was, you know, running cable or you know, any sort of job that would help me pay that student debt off. And um, I saw a job at uh, BOC Gases and I may have extended the truth a little bit to get the job and told them that I was 100% confident working with computers and I had a forklift licence and a truck licence, um, which I did have my truck licence, um, but I knew <laughs> nothing about computers. I think I'd probably nearly failed computer science at school. And it just so happened that um, BOC Gases at the time were actually implementing SAP. And when they gave me this system, it just made sense. It was probably the first time I'd ever sat with any sort of um, operating software where everything that you had to do to do your job was just common sense. So I sort of fell into this job, um, not thinking it would take me anywhere or that I would stay in this job because I swore a lot at SAP. It was you know, terrible at the start. Um, but when I, I left that job to travel around the world, I started to realise just how good this software was because I would go into other roles and I would try to do things that I had been able to do in SAP and I just couldn't do it. Um, so the, the role sort of came from there. In, in, in London, I was picked up by a big stationery company and I was doing a very similar role and then I went from London, you know, back to Australia and then to Europe and everywhere I went in the world, there was always a demand for SAP. So I just stayed in this industry because it allowed me the flexibility to travel wherever I wanted to in the world and still actually have an income that could afford for me to then go and take six months off and travel again. So I still haven't stopped. <laughs> That's a very similar um not story, I guess, but why uh, Nick Safiris, we sat down with Nick Safiris in the first series and he was explaining about um, yeah, SAP and we actually titled the podcast um, A Passport and he, he literally said that it is like a passport and you can travel anywhere and like you said, the demand is always high for um, for SAP people. So um, yeah, it's another good story. Absolutely. And I mean, you probably already touched on it anyway, but is that what keeps you in the SAP domain? Like, what do you most enjoy about it now, having been here for 20 plus years? Um, I don't know. If, I don't know if it's in enjoyment as such. I think it's more that um, common familiarity that, you know, mm. when a client gives you a challenge that the software that we're working with um, 
it doesn't sort of have boundaries. Anything is capable and everything is possible in SAP, um, given a broad mind and a, and a clear direction of what you want to achieve at the end of it. So no job in SAP is the same because every client has deviations to how they want to operate or how they need a process to work for them and, and, and what industry they're in. So whilst the base of it is very, very comparable across industries, the ability to change that technology without, um, you know, too much, I won't say too much effort because there is a lot of effort in doing that, but the, the possibility to make a system for a client that will give them the best solution is probably more achievable in SAP than some of the other ERP systems um, that I've come across over the last 30 years kind of thing. Sure. And and Tina, given you said there's no SAP role that's the same and um, that would probably feed into there's no SAP program that's uh, that's the same. I'd love to understand how you would define what a successful SAP program is to you. And then on top of that as well, Tina, how has that changed over time? Yeah, that's that's a really good question because SAP over the years, I started with SAP in R2. Um, I didn't even realise I was using SAP many, many, many years before I did the BOC gases job. And, you know, when I first started on these programs of work, um, SAP, it was quite common to customise and continually customise this system to suit the business. Now we're starting to work with a standard set of operating procedures and best practice, which has been developed by SAP. And we're only having to slightly deviate at times to now fulfil a customer's requirements. So SAP has evolved, you know, obviously over the last 50 years that it's it's been around to a point now where we're not having to manipulate the actual program itself to suit a customer. So, I mean, for me, a really successful program is to implement SAP um, with as few changes as possible because ultimately... SAP does update the software over a period of the licensing time that a client owns it. And if we can actually just apply these updates to the system without fear of, um, you know, customised programming falling over, that that's fantastic. But, you know, we're still not quite there yet in the industry that we can provide every solution to every customer, but we're very close with the technology that SAP has implemented and the change to some of the cloud offerings and the new technologies that come with artificial intelligence and, and you know, all of the new technologies that are now available in the world. So for something to be really successful to me is to actually give the client um, the most efficient solution for their business that doesn't deviate too far from the best practice that SAP offers them to use. Sure. And you mentioned there about um, not changing too much. I, I remember being at an event uh, a couple of years ago. We used to host these um, a change leadership group and um, there was a gentleman called um, Murray Black there. And Murray said that if your program needs change management, it's failed. <laughs> and I was like, that's quite a confronting comment there. And what he meant really was that it's basically what you're saying about the the change component to the business you don't want to change too much and the the business should want the the technology but have you got have you got a view on that at all tina that comment and um yeah yeah look i think any project that is run without change management will be a failure because there is inevitably going to need to be change in any business if if the business's mandate is to align with the SAP best practice. And 
Um, whether it's in work or if it's in personal life or sporting life, things evolve over a period of time and we start to allow bad habits to creep into what we do every single day. And you will notice, you know, with some companies that um, don't do the upgrades with SAP um, and they don't, uh, you know, they end up out of support and they're still customising this system. When it does come time to bring them into line with the new technologies, their actual business processes have deviated so far from what would be considered best practice that any change we do make is going to be a fundamental change to the way their people work. And that change to the way their people work may need to involve unions and HR. So to not have change management, I think is actually, um, I, I think it could be very detrimental to a business having a successful implementation. And I mean, there's a very old book from the 70s called Who Moved My Cheese? And that is just so applicable even now in 2021 to any business that is making a change. You know, they just have to have that that team of people working with them, even if just from a comms point of view. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I can't, I could like every program that we meet with, program directors, CEOs, I always ask a question of, you know, if you could go back and you could start this project again, what would you invest more in? And nine times out of 10, it's change management. They would have started it earlier. They would have started at the beginning. They would have invested in that whole journey a lot easier. Um, so yeah, totally agree. And it, I probably that leads really well because I imagine change management is going to be one of them. But what are the top three imperatives you look for within your team when you're delivering a project? Um, look, certainly change is very, very high in the piece. That that whole change comms piece, I believe, is the difference between um, a successful and an unsuccessful project. But to be able to have that change and that comms undertaking, you need to have people that understand the business or understand the process. So for me, you need to have very clearly defined processes of how you want your business to work. Now, it's not necessarily how we work now, but it's what can we do in our process that will enable us to be more efficient um, in the future using this new technology that you have. And then probably the third thing for me is um, to have the right people in the right places. You know, you, you don't want a HR person um, sitting in a maintenance and engineering room trying to teach a planner how to plan their maintenance work. So to have the right people um, with the right skill set, um, it enables you to deliver a program of work that is successful for the client. Okay, brilliant. And um, another question for you around your yeah, project management methodology. Can you Can you define that? Um, look, to be honest, I don't sit at the top of the tree in terms of project management. I like to sit um, in that team lead position or that delivery lead where I'm still reporting up to um, people who probably have more of a corporate ethic and they can deal with the politics that are required. Because when you're doing these programs of work, you know, it could be a million dollar project or it could be a $100 million, you know, $100 million project. You need to have a certain type of person to be able to communicate to the board and, and, and do it in a way that's accepted. Um, I always say I'm a nuts and bolts person. I like to get my hands dirty in the work. I like to be in there solving the problems. Um, and I like to be working with the people that I have in my team who are working. Yes, they're working for me, but my philosophy is that we're working together. Um, and it's like taking a bunch of firefighting guys. When they go out to a fire, it's not just one person fighting the fire. They're working together as a team and, and they provide a solution at the end of it. I think if you start to work in silos, then 
you know, you start to fragment your team and resentment of one person doing more than another starts to creep in. So I like to have it as, you know, we are one family, we are in this together. And, you know, if we stay united, then we will become more successful. And if you don't know something, ask somebody within the team because they may have the solution for you. And, and don't be afraid to put your hand up and say, hey, I don't know this, because that's why we have teams of people to work with, because we don't expect every single person to know every single thing. It's it's a shared brain. Sure. And given um, you like being in the, the nuts and bolts and the crux of a, a project, um, what leadership style do you like and works with and what have, have you seen work before, um, you know, with some of your leaders in the past? Yeah, look, I've had some fantastic leaders in the past and um, and I won't name them because there's been quite a lot of them. Um, but when I say that my leadership style is loose, it's not loose as in a loose cannon. It's loose in that I like to enable the people that I'm working with to make the right decisions to produce the work. You know, we have a timeline, we have a plan, we have deliverables and, you know, we're adults in, in this world and... Um, we have the capability to see when something is due. We have the capability to communicate with a client. And I like to give people the opportunity to be able to do that work without being micromanaged. Um, micromanagement is one of the things I hate the most, and I think it costs projects a lot of time and a lot of money. Um, when you are engaging somebody to do that work, you've gone through the recruitment process to say, this is the person who is most suited to this job. They have the skill set. They've got the references. They have the ability. We've now engaged them. I don't want to have to sit over their shoulder every day and say, have you done this? Have you done this? Because it's wasting my time and it's wasting their time. And it does cause resentment within within these teams. And I mean, some of these programs of work could have 140, 150 people. And you imagine having a project manager going and trying to do that to every single person. I just think for me, it's a wasted resource. And I don't believe personally that it's a great way to work. I think it's very old and antiquated. And I think, you know, you give people that responsibility. There's two things that are going to happen. They're either going to do it or they're not. And if they don't do it, then you have to say, well, is this the right person? Have we engaged the right person for the project? Because the decision has to be made. Now, you do have to coach some of the younger people through because, it, you know, it might be their second or third project and they still need help. But you've got to allow people to make the mistake for them to actually learn. Mm -hmm. and And then if they make the mistake the second and the third time, that's when you go, well, I have to micromanage this person. They're probably not the right fit. Maybe we need to reconsider the position they're in. Is there something else they can do for us that they're better skilled for? Yeah, I've always said, yeah, failures are your biggest asset, but only if you learn from them for sure. So, um, yeah, that's good. Well, that's it. You would never, ever learn if you never, ever made a mistake. Mm. So if, if you you've not taken that step. Yeah, you, you just, you could never improve as a person if you weren't prepared to take the risk to make the mistake. And I think that's it, is you've got to take that risk first. And I think COVID has actually really forced a lot of these workplaces to recognise that there was perhaps an error in their management style. It's forced people to take that step back, to not have that constant, like, let me just peep over to your desk. What's that going on there on that screen? What are you exactly saying here? I think having that distance between where people actually work and seeing how people can work both independently but then autonomously within a team has really revolutionised how 
people now approach program delivery, project delivery. It's totally like reinvigorated yeah. the working market. That's it. And if you if you don't have trust in the people you're working with, what hope do you have in actually having a successful business or a successful project or a successful life? You have to give that trust. And, and I think a lot of the working from home has forced a lot of companies to change their um, perception of what people do when they're home. Yes, they might go and put a load of laundry on or they might go and mow the lawn in their lunchtime or whatever it might be. But the fact is they're still delivering at the end of the day. So should we be concerned that they've put that load of washing on or should we always have to look over their shoulder or are we getting mm. are we getting better efficiency from our people because they may not be commuting two, three, four hours a day? No, exactly, exactly that. And look, we touched on it already, but like we mentioned, mistakes really are how you learn. It's how you grow as a person. It's how you grow as a professional. What would you say was your biggest mistake? and what did you learn from it? Um, it's probably not fit for this podcast, my biggest mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Look, possibly possibly in my youth, I, I had a desire to do some different study at university and I kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And I think I did that to satisfy other people and to ful fulfil other people's demands of what I should be and what I should give to them and 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 how they could use me and now you know I'm I'm nearing to the half century and you know I love my job and I love the people I work with and the industry that I'm in but I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up so that's probably my biggest regret is that I had the opportunity when I was footloose and fancy and it's actually more difficult when you become older and you're a, a parent and you've got um, adult things to have to worry about um, to just stop everything and go you know what I'm taking these next two or three years for myself so those regrets and maybe putting things off that I could have done years ago but then is it really a regret because maybe life the part the journey that I've been on may not have been what it is had I made those changes all those years ago so I don't know if it's a regret and I don't know if I learned from it but I am trying to not put off things that I can do now. I don't want to say I'm going to do it in five years because in five years something else is going to have come up. Mm. That's brilliant insight. Yeah, I think a lot of people can take a lot from just that sentence there. That was brilliant. Um, coming back to um, yourself and your, your career, you must have had a lot of um, key people that have influenced you through your career, but who would you say has been the biggest influence on your career and, and what did they teach you? Look, um, probably my grandfather. And um, my pop's 92 years old this year. And wow. he, he is a gem of a man. And God, I'd love to see a podcast on this man and what he has done because he is an <laughs> person. Um, and my eight-year-old son recently had to pick a person in the world that they admired and write about him. And his life has just been, um, he's lived with so much positivity. You know, he left school because his family had no money. He had no shoes to wear to school. So he would walk five kilometres in freezing cold snow in New Zealand to get from his farm to his school so that he could learn to read because he felt that if he could read, then he could better negotiate the prices that they were selling their milk for to the dairy. Um, and then he left the dairy and he could, you know, he left school so that he could work full time in the dairy. And then he would take on other odd jobs and other farms. And that bought him his first pair of gumboots. And then when his gumboots didn't fit him, he would pass them on to the next person and he would get his next pair. 
And, you know, his life from that dairy to where he is now in Western Australia has just been, um, it's, it's been created through this positive thought that you can achieve anything. If you want something bad enough, you can do it. And it, you don't have to be um, a scholar. You don't have to go to Harvard. You, you don't have to have a university education. It is getting harder now in this day and age. You know, kids just can't leave school when they're 13 years old, get a job and, you know, become Prime Minister of Australia. The, it is a little bit harder. But to see a person who's gone, you know what, I need to support my family and I need to make something better. I'm going to make this work. You know, he came from a dairy farm to having one of the largest earth moving businesses in New Zealand. And then, you know, he gave all of that up because he felt that there was a better future for our family in Australia. So he picked everything up, the whole family, and he moved us all to Australia. And then his work started once again in the earth moving and construction industry, but he started building limestone marinas. So if anyone's been to Western Australia and you see the Fremantle Wharf where the America's Cup was actually housed, that is actually my granddad's work and the Coogee Marina and Hillary's and, you know, the doors will cut. He's worked so hard in his lifetime and he's never complained about what he's had to do. He's just had this positive take on, I can do this. It's great for the environment. There's a legacy for my kids and my grandkids and now great grandkids to look at. I'm providing for my family any opportunity that comes my way. If I don't know it, I'm going to know it by the time I've finished it. And I just think that positive attitude and that welcoming arms, you know, and this whole time that he's been doing this, he's raised his own four kids. He's raised a few grandkids in his house. And then he's had all these adopted, what we call adopted family members that have turned up in Western Australia to play rugby league and they've lived in our house as well. There's always been any number of people in there. So whilst he's not running the government and he's not saving lives, I think just the wisdom that this man has imparted and, and his take on life that he has provided to so many people has probably set him apart from these scholars because, you know, his message is the same to everyone. Just work hard, make your own luck, look after your loved ones, you know, be safe, be kind, because kindness is free. And I don't think I've met anyone else like him in my whole working career. Everyone else has a motive to succeed. His success isn't about him. It's about his family and his friends. And if he's successful, then they're successful kind of thing. It's never been him and the bright lights. It's always been what he's able to do to give to others. And I, I think, I just hope that everyone has a person like that in their life because he truly is one in a million and he's one in a million, not just to me, but to so many people. So very, very lucky to have had him in my life. Love that, Tina. That's amazing. Emotional. He's, he's, he's a really good old egg. Like he never says, don't do that. He goes, go and try it. Because if you don't try, how are you going to know if you can do it or not? Just, just do it. And I love him for it. He's, he's great. And he's got a little potty mouth when he's not talking to the ladies. <laughs> I've caught him a few times. He's never sworn in front of me, but I've heard him, you know, talking with his mates and he's got this little potty mouth. And then you walk in and he goes back to this prim and proper English. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> what a guy. I do have an uncle that's also like that. He's half blind, half deaf. But if there's a pretty waitress. All of a sudden, he can read the menu. He can hear just as well. <laughs> all the charms been turned on. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, there we go. And 
What a great story. I would love to have him on the podcast. Um, look, you've already touched on it as well, but what would you tell your, your 21-year-old self? What would your granddad maybe tell your 21-year-old self if he could go back in time? Maybe do it all again. <laughs> maybe maybe try, try the things that I thought I wanted to do. Maybe don't put them off. Um, but, geez, I've had, a, I've had a really good life. So... I would like to do it all the same again. Might might go a little bit more wild on my travels in my youth, but um, yeah, just continue to experience everything that the world throws at you because it is true when they say the world is your oyster. Brilliant piece of advice. And then um, yeah, we'd love to have your, your granddad on on the podcast as well. Um, <laughs> that is a gem. <laughs> but um, who else would who else would you like to see um, you know on the podcast? Maybe in the in the SAP space. Um, you know, any like leaders that you worked with before, managers, or yeah, anyone you'd like to hear their their story, basically. Um, look, if it has to be in the SAP space, there's a gentleman called Mike Harvey, um, and. He's a man, when I first came back from overseas, um, he took a risk on me to employ me to do some work for BHP in the maintenance and engineering space, which I had never, ever worked in. Mm-hmm. And he took me under his wing. He taught me absolutely everything he knew. And still to this day, I just love seeing this man because he is a genuine soul-to-the-earth person who manages his teams well. He knows he knows the technology extremely well and he's a really great guy. He, he actually has a personality. He's not a stiff robot. <laughs> um, so from the SAP space, he is probably my ultimate person. But if you guys could get your hands on anyone, um, I was fortunate enough to go to the Crimmins Medal or the Hawthorne Football Club a number of years ago and I got to listen to Alistair Clarkson speak and that man is brilliant. Um, I could listen to him for five or six hours. He is, like Justin Langer for you guys was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, Alistair Clarkson is probably the next level. He's, like I sat there completely um, besotted by everything that came out of his mouth and it wasn't about football. It was about life and business and family and, and how he applies his philosophy and, and how he encourages people to look after each other and, yeah, he, he was fantastic. If you guys could get him, I think he would be brilliant. I'll toss you with that one, Sarah. Yeah, Maybe you could uh, reach out. <laughs> That'd be a different marketing call, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much, Tina, um, for coming along. I really do feel like we know you so much better already, but um, I'm going to have to give your granddad a call, I think, when I need a pep talk. Oh, he's a, <laughs> he is a great old egg. He, I think everybody in their lifetime should get to meet him at least once. And um, and yeah, he's just he's just they don't make them like this too often anymore. No, doesn't sound like it. One in a million. Well, thank you so much for coming along. Yeah, thank you, Tina. That was amazing. Thank you for your insights there. And um, yeah, we appreciate your time. You're welcome.